Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Show podcast today on the pod. Why do voters continue to accept commuting and travel chaos? And how real are Ottawa's electric vehicle targets as the government begins pushing Canadians away from fossil fuel vehicles? And from jerseys thrown on the ice to the constant booing from fans, can the Canuck season get any worse? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Let's focus on the story of the day, that being the commuting and travel chaos brought on by Tuesday's snowstorm. We learned today the number of international flights allowed to land in Vancouver will be restricted over the next couple of days as the airport works to clear a backlog of planes. Thursday and Friday were expected to be some of the airport's busiest of the year, with more than, with more than get this, 134,000 combined travelers passing through. Now, today the airport was back to about 60% of its uh, typical operating levels as of midday, but many have asked, could the airport have been better prepared for the blast of snow from Tuesday night. Here's YVR spokesperson uh, Trevor Boudreaux. Yeah, we do to a certain degree, but uh, for context, uh, that was triple the amount of snow that was was forecast, and I don't think anybody across this region uh, could have ever uh, prepared uh, in that way. Uh, It's important to note, in aviation, snow is a safety uh, event, and our primary concern is for passenger safety, uh, and everything that we do has their safety in mind. It was unsafe overnight uh, to move to get passengers off planes, and that led to some uh, weights on the tarmac. Uh, of extended period of time, and that was very unfortunate. Uh, but as soon as it was safe, and as soon as the snow stopped, uh, we had passengers deplaned into the terminal building. Now, all of this chaos occurred after, obviously, a rare major snowfall. It choked virtually every avenue of transportation from, of course, as we said, grounded flights at the airport to jammed traffic on the roads. What was Tuesday night like? Take a listen. Much of the South Coast hit hard with snow overnight. I am knee-deep in snow right now, and the message from the province is to stay home if you can. Some say snow removal efforts need to be more consistent across jurisdictions. Low-heat highway through Coquitlam. The road is covered in snow, but a few hundred meters west of that, in Burnaby, that same highway is clear. The SkyTrain in Vancouver was being pushed to its limits tonight. took like six attempts for all the doors to close, but my favorite part was that it just started snowing in all of the sky trains. Like you could just see the snow and the doors freezing. I don't think people are really prepared. I mean, in the back of my car, I've got a steel shovel to shovel out my tires if I get stuck. We're getting pretty restless right now, just trying to you know, get a sense of direction, trying to figure out, you know, when are we going to get off this plane? Now, many are asking, of course, why is Metro Vancouver always caught flat-footed when snowfall occurs? After all, we had a bit of experience of this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it is really frustrating that a major metropolitan area, two and a half million people, 55% of British Columbia's population, and once again, this city is at a standstill. Joining me now to talk about uh, uh, the snow and how we deal with it is Daniel Fontaine. He's a councillor for the city of New Westminster. Daniel, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon, Jeff. So let's talk about this a little bit. Uh, When Tuesday night came along, did you think we would do better in handling this snowfall compared to what we went through a couple weeks ago? Uh, Well, I hoped we would do better. (laughs) Whether or not we actually perform better is a whole other uh, issue. So we had, um, obviously, on November 29th, a complete and utter gridlock where nobody was moving around in that first snowfall. And the second one, which came, what, a couple of weeks after that, we had uh, significantly different problems that occurred. We saw problems on the North Shore, obviously, and then furthermore, we had problems with the airport in, in terms of being able to get employees um, to and from the airport safely to actually operate um, the equipment and operate all the, the airlines, etc. So our, our regional snowfall has suddenly become now an international issue in that we're, we're uh, effectively banning some international flights coming into the airport. And look, uh, Jazz, I just had a quick look at the forecast for Friday, and it's not looking good uh, both on Friday and then beyond that because we're going to be getting into some, looks like some heavy rain next week on top of all this snow. So am I concerned um, as an elected official in this region that we're prepared or not prepared? Absolutely. Now, uh, a couple weeks ago, you, along with Surrey City Council Linda Annis, uh, talked about uh, 
a snow summit where you'd have regional leaders get together and talk about a region-wide approach um, to dealing with snow events like we have seen this week and, and prior weeks as well. George Harvey, the mayor of Delta, also the chair of the Metro Vancouver Board, was on Mike Smith's show earlier today. Uh, they talked a little bit about a regional system or approaching uh, snow coverage in a regional manner. Take a listen to what he had to say. The other cities, uh, they, you know, I talked to the other mayors, they're doing the best they can, but I do not want to be involved in a regional type of system because that'll mean Delta won't get the proper service that it can get. And our, our residents are paying the taxes and we will respond to you know, what they want to do. If they want more trucks, they can petition us for it or whatever. We'll make sure that happens. But right now, I think the, in Delta, at least, uh, we're well under control. We have a good plan. Now, that is, of course, the mayor of Delta, but also the chair of the Metro Vancouver board. Your re- reaction to Mr. Harvey's comments from this morning? Well, I have a lot of reactions to that, <laughs> Jazz. I, I got to hear that interview this morning live. First of all, um, I will say that, that Mayor Harvey is uh, the regional uh, chair. He's the chair of Metro Vancouver. And as such, I was hoping he was going to look at this from a regional level. And it, it should be noted that we have regional coordination when it comes to sewers to water, uh, when it comes to policing cross borders. We have a lot of things that we do in our 20 plus municipalities that is coordinated regionally. And the reason we do that is because there is typically better efficiencies and it's better coordinated. Why on earth our snow response would be left to 20 plus municipalities to manage these things on their own and to not have a regional response is beyond me. And I think Mayor Harvey, with all due respect, I think he's lost um, the uh, the request, uh, perhaps it was in his email, I'm not sure, but we were not asking for anything more than to bring the key players into the same room so that we could talk about how we reacted and how we responded to these recent weather events. And simply put, it's not about a blame game. This is about finding um, some solutions and making sure that we can respond better into the future. I'm not calling for, nor is Councillor Annis, Uh, some kind of a a regional system. I don't know what the answer is, Jazz. That's why I think we should be getting together and and to hear that request being just dismissed, I think will not sit well with the public. My guest is Daniel Fontaine. Uh, He's a city councillor in Westminster talking about a regional snow summit. Now, one would say, look, this is a Vancouver issue only, but when you look at the impact the airport is having on travellers, but also not just Metro Vancouver travellers, but travellers across the country and within British Columbia as well. If you're a traveller coming from Kamloops, from Victoria, you're going to have a connecting flight probably through Vancouver. It impacts you. Or if you're coming into Vancouver, uh, give us a call on our open line. What do you think needs to be done to improve our response to snow in the Lower Mainland? Let's go to Tracy in Surrey. Hi, Tracy. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I'm just wondering, where are the snow plows? In every other province, and if you've lived back east, for those people that have, the snow plows are out at night all through the morning, and then they salt, so the roads are clear and people can drive. I live in a busy area of Surrey, not just very close to 160th on the Highway 1. Not one snow plow was out. The roads are thick. They're three feet thick in snow. Um, so that's my thing. Why, why do we not have snow plows going all through the night to clear all the roads? That Tra- would, we don't, yep. Tracy, you're talking about your municipal roads, or are you talking about Highway 1? Municipal. Ah, okay. Uh, Daniel, so, uh, go ahead, Tracy, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, lack, lack of um, lack of plows. And another thing, uh, where I was coming out, four people were stuck. We helped four people get out again, and I will say this, no snow tires. So everybody that had snow tires were getting around. The people that don't were stuck. And also I want to give a tip to everybody. Keep anything, a blanket or cardboard in your car. So if you are stuck, that's how we got the people out. We put cardboard behind and in front of the wheels. Mm -hmm. As soon as they got the traction, off they went. But where are the snow plows? Why aren't they snow plowing like they do back east? Tracy, thank you for your call. Daniel, part of it is, I mean, it's budget, right? We, we, correct me if I'm wrong here, but uh, municipalities generally probably rely, assume there's going to be one or two uh, snow events every year. You don't need to spend too much money. Uh, and in places like this, at, at the end of the day, you still have to have to have people doing all this work mm-hmm. and they have to sleep and they have to have some rest as well. Uh, is this part of the issue as well? We just don't have enough equipment and people dealing with this? Well, I think that is part of it, uh, Jazz. But here's the issue for me on this is we've been hearing for well over a decade from these same politicians that we've got climate change. There's going to be these climactic events that are going to be hitting us. We're going to be having more rain, more snow, etc. 
We've had over a decade. I mean, I don't remember the exact year Al Gore was warning about this, but I mean, I think we've had a long time to prepare for this. So, yes, a lot of cities do not invest in things like snowplows. And as a result, as your previous caller just said, people are stuck on their side streets. The streets are simply not being cleaned. But at the end of the day, we know that the weather is going to, you know, not get better. All the scientists are kind of aligned on that. I don't think that's in dispute. So why are we caught flat-footed again and again and again when we have um, a simple weather event like a snowstorm in Metro Vancouver? I just think it's unacceptable. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's go to Zach in Port Coquitlam. Hi, Zach. Uh, Hi, guys. Um, I think the provincial government should put in legislation a minimum standard for snow removal across all municipalities. Hmm. It's ridiculous. Like, I just coming off Grandview Highway under the number one, and there was a spun-out tanker, a cube down, and a Mustang that all weren't moving. We were going around them. 24 hours after the snowstorm on the main artery out of Vancouver under the number one. It's ridiculous. It's a disgrace. Zach, thanks for your call. I mean, I think that's actually not a bad idea. Minimum stems. I don't know how you write that, but uh, you're absolutely correct. Let's go to Sean uh, on the North Shore. Hi, Sean. How's the North Shore looking today? Oh, it's beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I don't doubt it's beautiful. How are the roads? It's beautiful now. The the side (laughs) streets are uh, packed snow. Uh, It's pretty tight. Uh, there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of SUVs over here, a lot of winter tires. But I uh, I, I do kind of reflect or mirror the same comments that Tracy did that that um, you know the citizens sort of have to take a little bit of responsibility here too. Mm-hmm. We don't get snow very often, it's true. Uh, so throwing a, a ton of money uh, to buy a bunch of equipment that on some winters might remain idle or just get sent out to the valley occasionally mm-hmm. uh, doesn't make a, a, a lot of sense, but but uh, if, if people would just prepare for it, uh, get snow tires, and if you don't have snow tires and you hear it's coming, just make alternate plans. Yeah. But otherwise, all we're going to do is just crowd up the streets, uh, and snow removal equipment can't get by jammed streets. Absolutely. Sean, the great advice. Thank you so much. Let's go to Richard uh, in uh, Port Coquitlam. we got about 30 seconds. Richard, go ahead. Okay, hi. Uh, You've got the best show going. I like your reasonableness. Um, Most days, anyway. (laughs) Yeah, well, if people don't have snow tires, why are people helping them out? Just leave them there. And secondly, if someone has no snow tires, you impound their car. Yeah. I Um, mean, they're driving, it's it's dangerous driving, so the police should be seizing it. And then people will think twice about driving without snow tires. Richard, thanks for your call. You actually raise a very good point. Part of it is personal responsibility. You're absolutely right. If you don't have them, stay home if you can. Take transit if you can. Daniel, we got about 30 seconds. Any final words from you? Uh, I am guessing you're going to be staring at your inbox waiting for an invitation from the Minister of Transportation, Rob Fleming, or perhaps George Harvey, Metro Vancouver Chair, to hold this snow summit. I'm eagerly uh, right by my laptop waiting for a response and uh, hoping that the day will be picked soon and we can get those players in the room and perhaps get answers to the questions that some of your listeners have had. I, I don't think we're talking rocket science here. I'm hoping that at some point, uh, perhaps in the next few weeks, we'll, uh, we'll hear back. Yeah, absolutely. Daniel, thank you so much for your time. And I really do hope uh, there is some sort of conversation around this. This is twice now within two weeks, and it does just cripple the lower mainland economically and it most importantly impacts people's lives as well. Thank you so much. Merry Christmas to you. Yeah, Merry Christmas to you too. Well, the number of international flights allowed to land in Vancouver will be limited over two of the busiest travel days of the year as the airport works to clear a backlog left on the airfield following widespread delays and cancellations, of course, during Tuesday's snowstorm. Now, YVR said the decision will affect more than two dozen international flights scheduled to land between today and Friday, just ahead of the Christmas weekend. Now, Seaham, as far, knows what travel chaos feels like. The Port Moody resident had quite the experience yesterday. She had a scheduled flight from Phoenix to Vancouver that turned into a nightmare. She joins us now. Sam, thank you uh, for speaking to us today. No problem. So walk me through your ordeal. Uh, so my ordeal first started um, when I was still in Phoenix, and my flight was supposed to depart at 2.30, and I received notification um, just before I was supposed to go to the airport that my flight was delayed till 5.30, which I expected because I knew that there was a lot of snow fall that happened the day before, and they were calling for more snow. So I got to the airport, and um, all was well. We, we got on our flight, no problem. We assumed that everything was going to be okay because I thought if the storm was that bad, they must have canceled, they, they would have canceled their flight, right? They wouldn't have allowed us to, mm-hmm. to land. So we landed uh, just after 10 p.m., uh, which was, you know, already five hours past when we were supposed to be there. 
And when we landed, the captain came on and said that we currently had no gate and we were waiting for a gate to be assigned to us. So I think myself, along with many others, we thought this was going to be a few minutes. Why we are, we're just going to, you know, get a gate cleared for us and we were going to be on our way. And next thing you know, we didn't get to disembark until 9 a.m. Oh, wow. So and so I just want to clarify here at the Phoenix airport, uh, there was a five and a half hour delay for the flight, first of all. Yes. And then there's a flight. And then on top of that, you landed Vancouver and then you're stuck at the tarmac for two hours on top of that just to get waiting for a gate. More than that. We were stuck for nine hours in total. But yeah, when we first landed, we all thought it was going to be quick. And then an hour passed. Captain came on. He let us know we were still waiting for a gate. Another hour passed. He said he wished he had better news for us. You could hear in his voice he was also, you know, worried and he didn't sound confident that we were going to have a gate. And he provided about half an hour, hour updates until about 2, 2.30 in the morning. And he stopped between about 2 and 5. And when I asked the flight attendant why we haven't had any updates, she said the captain was allowing people to sleep, didn't want to uh, disrupt us because there were no updates. And we were basically just stuck and waiting for a gate I asked the question of why have we, we have not been given stairs and buses when I saw a couple other flights have stairs dragged to them and they also got off on the bus. Um, I was confused because I was looking at the flight radar map and I knew that we had landed before them. So I was like, how is this queue being worked out? I don't really understand. Next thing you know, we ran out of fuel partway through as well. We had to get a fuel truck to come and give us fuel. And it was just a nightmare. So the total time just waiting on the tarmac, once again, how long was that? Nine hours, 10 mm-hmm. p.m. until just before 9 a.m. Oh, my God. Uh, and or 11 was, hours, I guess. Sorry, actually. My math is wrong. 11, 11 hours, yeah. 11 hours on, on the tarmac. Yeah. I mean, what was the mood of, of your, your, the, the passengers, including yourself, on just waiting that long? Oh, it was very, very tense. Uh, I had a panic attack. Uh, I, I really tried not to. I haven't had a panic attack in quite, quite a few years, actually. But just, you know, the stress of sitting there. Uh, my dad arrived at 11 p.m. with his girlfriend to come and pick me up. Uh, they slept in their car until about 5 in the morning when I called him. And I said, please just go home. I said, I have no idea when I'm going to get off this flight. Uh, he was worried. He didn't want to leave, of course. Uh, he wanted to make sure I had a safe way home. But at the same time, too, there was no end in sight. And thankfully, he did go home because I, I can't imagine he would have waited there for me for almost about 10 hours as well himself. And everyone was very tense. I'm surprised uh, more people didn't get mad. I think we all kind of shared the common uh, idea that we had no choice. So getting mad wasn't going to do anything. Getting mad wasn't going to magically get us to a gate and get stairs and allow us to to disembark. So there were a couple people who had a few arguments. Uh, one lady was um, trying to hold the baby and in the aisle, go up and down and, you know, keep him busy because he was obviously being frustrated. It was like maybe a two-year-old child and she had hit this elderly man's chair a couple times and he got frustrated and said, I just need a few minutes of peace and quiet. You keep hitting my chair and ended up being this sort of ordeal for a few minutes. That happened just right across from me, crying babies, elderly people stuck in the same seat for 11 hours. I, I just can't imagine. Um Look, these things happen. We we have snowstorms in Canada. We're in the northern hemisphere. The snow isn't new in this country. Um, how much do you blame the airport uh, and just generally this uh, region's inability to deal with snow, it seems? Oh, I, I, I 100% blame YBR Airport. Um, and I hope that when we do reach out for compensation, they don't say it was due to weather. Because if it was due to weather, they shouldn't have allowed us to land, right? They should have canceled our flight when we were back in Phoenix. And that would have saved a lot of us all of the trouble that we went through. YBR knew we were coming. They knew we took off three hours prior in Phoenix. Why was there not a gate ready for us to disembark? There was no excuse to have planes that were sitting there, which had no intention of leaving because those flights were canceled. Why were the planes not pushed back from the gate to allow us to come in? It just makes no sense. It was grossly mishandled on on all levels. Mm -hmm. It is. I find it mind-boggling, first of all, that you had a a five-and-a-half-hour delay for your flight in Phoenix, which, look, I, I, I kind of understand that. But the fact that you've landed, then you've got to wait another 11 hours to disembark is is uh, I, I am just amazed at your patience because I don't think most people would have that type of patience. And uh, good on us for being patient Canadians, but sometimes it's okay to maybe vent a little bit. So, I, Yeah. I, and so today, what are you doing? Are you going to work? Did you go to work? Yeah, I, I was supposed to go to work today. Uh, start my shift at 7 a.m., but I didn't sleep those whole 11 hours uh, on the tarmac plus the three hours prior on the flight, so my 14-hour journey, I didn't sleep, so I had over 24 hours 
been awake because it was hard to sleep when you're in that position. Um, first of all, sitting upright for that long. And secondly, you know, you have anxiety. You're wondering what's going on. You can't calm down to sleep. So I actually had to call in. Uh, so I'm losing a day of pay today as well because I had to call in and state that I could not come in. Um, so that's very unfortunate. So I'm really hoping we do get some sort of monetary compensation because this is just, you know, I've now let down my work. I've let down my fellow coworkers who rely on me to be there. And it's very unfortunate all around. Mm-hmm. Out of curiosity, I don't know where you live. Would you have been able to drive into work today, do you think? with, with in I would have. To, yeah. I, I personally would have. Yes, I have, <laughs> I have snow tires. Uh, my car is quite good in the snow. I have no issues. I've been, uh, my, when I was away these last couple of days, my, my partner was driving my car. He had no problem getting around. So thankfully, my winter tires definitely have saved me these last, uh, these last few snowfalls. Well, get some rest today. Uh, you deserve it, and uh, you know, all the best to you, and I really appreciate your patience, but I do hope you're compensated along with your other passengers because uh, that is quite the ordeal uh, to go through. Thank you so much for your time today, Saham. Yeah, of course, no problem. Thank you for uh, bringing light to this uh, story. I really hope that the more media attention we get and the more people talk about it, that uh, Air Canada and YVR does, uh, you know, provide an accountability statement and let us know what they're going to do in the future to avoid this from happening. One-fifth, 20% of all passenger cars, SUVs, and trucks sold in Canada in 2026, that's just, well, just over three years away, will need to run on electricity under new regulations proposed by the federal government today. By 2030, the mandate will hit 60% of all sales, and by 2035, every passenger vehicle sold in Canada will need to be electric. Now, manufacturers or importers who don't meet the sales targets could face penalties under the Canadian Environmental Protection Act. Joining me now to discuss these new regulations is Jeremy Cato. He's an automotive journalist at CatoCarGuy.com. Good afternoon, Jeremy. Hi, Jazz. Hello. Now, first of all, I uh, heard the news today. What's your reaction to it? Do you buy it? Is it enforceable? Uh, well, well, I have three reactions. Uh, one is that it's pretty clear to me that uh, the Environment Minister, Stephen Gilbert, and Otto in general has never built or sold a car or a truck <laughs> and never will. Um, the second question I ha- ask myself is, where were the provinces today? You know, this is a big country, and none of this is going to happen properly without consultation and cooperation between the provinces. And you can see that reflected in where EVs are sold in this Canada. And the third thing, it jumped right off the uh, the announcement page, was there's a massive disconnect between Canada's EV ambitions, the federal government's, and the reality of what's on the street. Uh, so let's do the first thing here. When I, I mean, that's that's a lot to throw at me. we got five minutes here, but I want to get through some of okay. this. Um, the first set in regards to the disconnect, is it a question of people being, afford, being able to afford a Tesla or whatever car it may be? Uh, is it a question of just the practical realities that we still don't have enough charging stations in this country? What do you think about when you say disconnect? What do you mean? Well, uh, a whole bunch of things. One is that if, if I, I was just looking at an Ernst and Young readiness report for uh, for electric vehicles, um, Canada in just the last year under this Liberal government has dropped from eighth to thirteenth in a ranking of all the different things you need to have a to be ready for a full shift to electric uh, vehicles. If we stay on track with the current public infrastructure targets. Um, uh, uh, activities that we're doing will meet our infrastructure targets set by the federal government by 2050. So a little late for this new mandate that Minister Gilbert announced. Um, And then there's all kinds of frustration has an electric vehicle that doesn't have a home charging station. Those are the frustrations that everyone faces. And then our grid is a mess. Um, You know, it takes a to electrify a typical gas station today, well, that, that, to make that functional, you're talking about a, a unit, uh, a location that is, uh, has enough, as much juice as a, uh, a sports stadium. So we really need to double the grid capacity in this country. Did you hear any of those points brought out by the minister today? No, no. Now, uh, yeah. none of them. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Now, the first six months of this year, electric vehicle sales, I think, including full electric, fully electric and plug-in hybrid vehicles made up uh, just 7.2% of new car registrations. And for all of 2021, the proportion was 5.2%. Now, of course, it's a big country, as you said. Uh, what we do in BC, we may be doing, we may be a little higher compared to other provinces. Uh, but you raise a very good point, which is uh, how do you charge 
uh, and build the infrastructure. You told me a story a while back, I recall now, that you were looking at even electrifying. You live in a condo development, I believe, or townhouse complex in North Vancouver, and you had looked at potentially bringing in um, plug-ins, but it was gonna. It was quite expensive, wasn't it? Oh, I I took. I, I'm a uh, on a strata council of a property. Um, I, you know, the last year I've been the vice president of the council, and so I took it uh, as part of uh, the council's mandate to figure out what we could do. It's a 40 year old building that I'm on this particular strata, um, and it's it's a it's a complicated process, um, and we would. Well, we would be eligible for an excess of $100,000 from the provinces and B, uh, province in BC Hydro if we fulfilled a number of uh, standards. And one of those was to wire all the parking garages for charging stations, which is unrealistic in a you know concrete building that's 40 years old. I mean, the, the cost of that is, is quite – and the details of that. So it's very difficult to retrofit. Uh, uh, existing buildings. So, so, and, and most, you know, even though this particular government is madly rushing towards uh, building uh, new uh, rental housing and, and, and so on, um, most people live in older buildings if they live in a multi-unit building, and it's very difficult to retrofit that. So that that's one of the issues. Even 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 so. I, I would just point out that with all these sorts of barriers, BC, you know, we're 15% of electric vehicle sales this year, which is twice the national average. So it's not that these things aren't popular or at least interesting to consumers. It's just there's a lot of barriers. And we see over and over and over from both the federal and provincial government lots of mandates and rules and targets, but we don't see the nuts and bolts of what it takes to achieve those things. Yeah, you raise a very good point. It, it, the electric vehicle sales uh, from January to June in BC, 15% of all new vehicles register yeah. are electric vehicles. Quebec is second at 11.4%, but then it drops off in third place in Ontario, the most populous province, where only it's only 5.5%, and the number is below 4% in all other provinces. So BC may be leading the, prov- uh, the country in regards to electric vehicle sales, but it falls off pretty quick when you when you look at uh, Ontario and uh, and uh, other uh, other provinces. Uh, the the deadline itself, we don't have a lot of time, but the deadline itself, uh, of course, of sixty percent um, uh, by twenty thirty and by twenty fifty. I guess we we're supposed to reach some sort of utopia, and it'll all be done. <laughs> Do you remotely buy any of this happen? This remotely happening by that time or in and around that time? We should never say never, but what we should uh, focus on is what does it take to move ahead and make this thing happen? Well, we need to deal with the grid. We need to deal with the existing infrastructure that we have and improve uh, improve it. And that's not just the grid, but how to retrofit buildings like we just talked about. And then finally, what really drives sales is consumer purchase incentives. And Canada, according to a Wells Fargo report I just looked at, is is out of the top 20 in global uh, in countries for support globally for the purchase of EVs. Those are incentives and that sort of thing. So if the federal government really wanted people to make things happen, they'd provide uh, more in incentives, and that would also apply to the provinces. And just that one la- last point, really quickly, I know you're short on time, but, mm-hmm. you know, there's that BC 15% of EV sales, Ontario 5.5%. Guess which province has very robust incentives and which one doesn't? Yeah, you can tell. That just says it all, yeah. doesn't it? That, that's that's yeah. about the extent of it. Jeremy, thank you so much, my friend. Okay, we'll do it again. All right. Happy Have... uh, holidays, Merry Christmas, and Happy New Year. Well, today the provincial government is uh, said it is pumping the brakes on new cryptocurrency mining operations. Now, cryptocurrency is a decentralized form of virtual currency that is not managed or controlled by banks or governments. Mining it involves using dedicated computers to form complex calculations to create quote-unquote, uh, new coins. Joining us now to discuss the issue is Josie Osborne. She's a Minister of Energy, Mines and Low Carbon Innovation. Minister, thank you for joining us today. Well, hello. Thanks for having me on. I think this is the first time we've had you on the show. It's great to have you aboard and, and uh, look forward to uh, a significant conversation around energy and mining uh, in the future. But this uh, press release that came across my desk today caught my attention. This um, this announcement of pumping the brakes on new cryptocurrency mining operations, why was this needed? 
Well, we have seen an incredible uptick in applications or requests to BC Hydro to connect to the system for cryptocurrency mining operations. And like you said in your intro there, it takes a tremendous amount of energy. So we know that British Columbians want to see us preserve this clean electricity for things that really matter to us. And that's around achieving our climate action goals, uh, you know, reducing pollution and uh, increasing local economies, seeing that kind of success. So we knew that we needed to take this pause. So we had the time to assess the applications and make sure that we're prioritizing our clean electricity for the uses that people really want to see. How many cryptocurrency uh, operations are there in British Columbia? There are currently 13 cryptocurrency mining operations that are that are currently running or they're in the advanced stages of connecting to the system. But there are a further 21 that are in the queue behind them at the early stages of the process. And the incredible amount of energy that those 21 would take meant we knew we just had to press the pause button. Is there a centralized location in regards to where the, the, the uh, mines are located or the mining operations are located? Well, I can't speak to exactly where they are. Uh, I can say, though, that the 21 requests that are in the queue are a a total of 1,403 megawatts of power. And that's the same energy it would take to power approximately 570,000 homes or to operate 2.1 million electric vehicles. So it's a significant amount of power across BC. Uh, is that the size of two site C's? I'm just doing the math in my head. Maybe I could be completely wrong here. Is that like the size of two site C's? Well, it, it is an incredible amount of power. And, and we do have that, a surplus of energy right now, but we know we need to manage that responsibly mm-hmm. uh, with site C in place and uh, or coming online, hopefully uh, 2024. And we know that, again, we have to use this electricity responsibly. So that's what the decision is really about. Uh, Why British Columbia? And are we um, attracting more attention than other jurisdictions? And if we are, why is that? Well, I think we have that clean energy that many businesses are looking for. And we have low rates. And, of course, that's a really helpful thing, too. But we want to make sure that we prioritize the industries and businesses that are electrifying and creating good jobs. And that's something that the cryptocurrency mining operations just don't provide compared to other industries, which is a decent amount of jobs and, and again, really meeting those clean BC goals, the climate action targets that we have. If the cryptocurrency industry, uh, when they hear this and, and say, look, we're not going to invest in British Columbia, are you okay with losing that business? As you're saying, there's not a lot of people employed by them. So your, your argument would be, we're not losing much by doing what we're doing today. Well, I think that we're going to be faced with tough choices in the future and we have to make trade-offs. But we also know that we need to take the time to engage and consult with First Nations and with communities and with industry itself. That's exactly what we're doing. So over the next 18 months, Although we've put a pause on applications or requests into the system, we're going to take that time to do the work to develop a framework so that we can understand if and how cryptocurrency mining could fit into BC's energy system. Mm. Now, when you think of, uh, we were talking about electric cars earlier in the demand um, and to, you know, to use that power, you have an LNG plant um, being built right now in, um, in Kitimat, the largest private sector investment in the history of this province, $36 billion. Um, that's going to eat up a significant amount of energy, um, although uh, a lot of that's going to be natural gas. The ancillary power is going to be electric. You have... Um, uh, uh, another plant opening up here with fiber, once again, uh, uh, natural gas, but and smaller. Um, my, my, my question to you here is, even with, let's say, a potential expansion of LNG, which may require electrifying, number one. Number two, the greater push as the federal government and the provincial government is encouraging everybody to move towards electric cars. Will we need to build another site C just based on the electricity needs of what's coming in this province from industry. And some have said, if everybody went to an electric car today, we'd need two Site Cs. Will we need another Site C once Site C opens up, just because of the uh, upcoming demand that we expect over the next 10 or 15 years? Are we okay? Well, we, we do know that 
uh, projects like Sightsee, they're providing the clean energy, the clean electricity that British Columbians want to use. But we also know in this clean energy transition that we're making, we need to look at alternative sources of energy. And it's not just about the supply, but the demand side as well. And so looking at energy efficiency and seeing how we can uh, improve that so that we've got more power. The cheapest power that we use is the, is, is the, ones that, the power that we save. So this is why the Premier has asked me to take a look at a climate-aligned energy framework for British Columbia. It's incredibly important that we look into the future, not just the next few years, but far into the future to understand what British Columbia's energy needs are, what the best composition and mix is, and how we get the best results for our citizens and for communities here. So we want to see the benefits staying locally. We want to see people being able to make the choices that we know British Columbians want to make about switching to electric vehicles or installing heat pumps in their homes. That, again, is why we took the pause on the cryptocurrency request so that we could have the space and time to be able to do that kind of analysis. It's the kind of analysis we need to do looking forward into the future so we can make the right decisions and the tough decisions. Uh, Are other jurisdictions, uh, are we following other jurisdictions or other jurisdictions doing what we're doing in regards to putting a break on a new cryptocurrency mining? Great question. In Quebec, they have done this. So a, a pause on cryptocurrency operations gave them the time to develop some Uh, changes in their rates and and really understand what the industry was looking for and what they were willing to give. So following the the work that's been done in Quebec, uh, Manitoba is another example of a province that's done this. We know we're on the right track here and really look forward to seeing what we can learn over the next 18 months as we figure out how and if cryptocurrency mining fits into BC. Well, Minister, uh, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, Great to have you on the show for the first time. I look forward to chatting with you uh, in the future as well. Thank you so much and Merry Christmas to you. Thanks, Jazz, and Merry Christmas to you and your listeners. Last week, we reported Vancouver will be getting some new modular housing units for people experiencing homelessness uh, in the city. Uh, the B.C. government announced construction uh, has begun on uh, two temporary bridge-to-housing uh, bridge projects that will provide 90 units. Premier David Eby says the project will help bring people living in the downtown east side off the street and into uh, stable housing. Well, the Minister of Housing, Ravi Kailan, on this program also said to expect more announcements similar to what we heard in, uh, here in Vancouver. Uh, throughout the province in 2023. Now, joining us now to discuss the issue of modular housing uh, is Dania Fast. Uh, Ms. Fast is a research scientist at the BC Centre on Substance Abuse and an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at UBC. Uh, Ms. Fast, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, this is a very interesting uh, conversation uh, around modular housing. Uh, First and foremost, um, are the the modular housing units, uh, in regards to what the Premier and the Housing Minister announced, is that the right way to go in regards to the specific issues that we're dealing with here uh, in the downtown core along Hastings Street and at Crab Park to find, um, uh, to build these houses to help those folks? Do you think it's the right way to go? Well, housing is obviously critical. Uh, to people's health and well-being. But my work is primarily with young people who use drugs. And what we've heard from young people really over the past decade plus when it comes to housing Mm -hmm. is that they're looking for permanent housing. They're looking for housing that feels like a home. And we have heard that modular housing, which is temporary, Uh, tends to not fit that bill. So it's not necessarily taking the young people who are a part of our research where they want to go. Mm -hmm. And and in regards to your research, what do you think the government needs to do at the civic level and the provincial level to address some of those issues? Is it a question of finding specific housing for them or is it building a different type of housing for that vulnerable group? I think we want to be building housing that is more permanent, that feels like a home, that is desirable and safe. And some modular housing environments are not fitting those parameters, at least in terms of what we've seen so far. In terms of this new housing that's coming online, there may be ways to better design it to sort of foster those those kinds of things, safety, a sense of home, uh, a sense of community. But we need to think very carefully about how to make that happen because what we've heard is that many modular housing environments can actually feel like the exact opposite. So they can feel unsafe, 
They can feel temporary and actually deep in a sense of uncertainty. Uh, and they can feel sort of like, a, you know, we've had young people use this language of it's a dead end, uh, which is obviously very alarming in the context of the current overdose crisis. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to be thinking about permanent housing and we need to be thinking about a range of housing options for people who are pursuing abstinence, as well as those um, who are not pursuing abstinence and continuing to use substances. Uh, some of uh worry that these modular housing units become permanent. Uh, it's, it's exactly the opposite of what you think needs to happen. I remember when I was in MLA hearing many stories about um, the challenges that they had in Nanaimo, specifically the mayor of Nanaimo, now Leonard Krogh, and at that time MLA. Uh, there are a lot of issues around uh, trying to help these people who are in these tent, uh, tent cities, but those uh, but the the modular housing unit itself is still operating. It's supposed to be temporary. Based on what you said, one would argue it's the wrong way to go right from the start because too often what happens is political leaders build these things and then they sort of move on because there's many other issues to be looking at that they just become permanent, not the, but they don't solve the core issue of helping these people move away from some of those challenges that they have before them. Right. When this is the only thing available, I think what ends up happening is people are living this in these places wondering what's next. Is something next or is this, my situation forever. If that's the case, then that's deeply concerning because I want to work on various goals and make various kinds of changes in my life. And I don't feel like I can do that in this environment. In your research, has there generally been wraparound services that are available or or is that still few and far between in regards to renouncing these modular homes, but then you don't get the wraparound services that are needed? So I've done a lot of research in supportive housing buildings with wraparound services. And we have a study that's just starting up that's going to look at at modular housing specifically and what kinds of services are available there. What I'll say is that obviously wraparound services are a great idea. It's a great idea to embed services in housing. However, we need to be very careful about how doing that can make these places feel very institutional. So Mm -hmm. one thing that we hear a lot from young people is my housing's just like jail. My housing's just like juvie. Um, I feel like I'm in a hospital. So we need to be really careful because when we create housing that feels very institutional for young people that have experienced a lot of institutionalization across their lives, that can really signal danger. Uh, and can actually lead them to, you know, avoid or leave housing resulting in street-based homelessness. It can also deepen their anxiety as well as their substance use when they feel like they're institutionalized and there's no way out. So we need to be very aware of those dynamics as we're designing housing mm-hmm. for young people who use drugs and, and likely more broadly as well. How did we get here? I mean, the challenges have, one would argue, always been there in regards to a vulnerable population. But the challenge, the core challenge of housing, it's not just a Vancouver issue, it's a Toronto issue, it's uh, many other uh, communities around North America. Uh, How have we gotten to a point where the solution in some cases happens to be modular housing? How did we get here in your mind? Is it just something that is temporary and of the moment uh, here in in British Columbia or Canada? Or has this been sort of structural and has taken decades to to get to this point? There's definitely a structural dimension. So as we live in societies with deepening, entrenched inequality and poverty, we're going to see more homelessness. We're going to see more of a need for housing. Uh, And when that is combined with you know, a lack of really sustained investment in permanent desirable housing, we're, we're going to get into this kind of situation where um, we're, you know, considering these more temporary measures, uh, perhaps out of sheer desperation. Hmm. Is there a jurisdiction uh, or a program in a different uh, jurisdiction that you like that we here in British Columbia should be watching closely as a potential solution for our challenges here in this province? I'm not sure if I can point to a particular jurisdiction, but one thing I'll say that we hear from young people repeatedly when it comes to the services 
that they're accessing, which includes housing, which includes housing with wraparound services, is young people are looking to build relationships. They want to be in housing environments where they can build relationships with each other and a sense of community and home. And they also want to be building relationships with the people who are working in these settings, providing that wraparound care. So we really want to be focusing on relationship and trust building before we focus too heavily on very medicalized approaches like treatment. Um, so that's, you know, that's something that's really been highlighted across our work uh, mm-hmm. over the past, over the, especially since the declaration of the overdose crisis. Mm-hmm. Do you think the provincial government, even civic government, is actually understanding some of the things that you're talking about here and what you, through your research, have, have, have found? And do you think that's informing their um, uh, decision making at this point? Or do you think there's more work to be done here? Well, I should say that I'm very happy to be doing more work. So I'm having a lot of conversations with government, with the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions. Uh, We would be very happy to work with the government as we roll out this new housing study, which is going to be going on for the next three years. I think there is more work to be done, but I will say that, you know, I'm a qualitative researcher. I'm a medical anthropologist by training. I feel like I have certainly been invited to the table much more since the declaration of the overdose crisis. Um, so that's really encouraging. And I also work with a great youth advisory council that's, that has also been very actively involved in different things that are going on at the provincial level. Mm-hmm. But of course, there's there's more work to be done. We know that so much of what we're doing isn't working in, you know, in the case of my own work for young people who use drugs. Mm-hmm. So there's much more dialogue that needs to happen. And um, we're very ready and willing to to have those conversations with government. Dr. Fass, thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed our conversation. Look forward to chatting with you in the future on this issue because it will be uh, clear and present before us in 2023. That's for sure. So if we don't talk before uh, December 25th, Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas. Thank you so much for having me and for highlighting this critical issue. The Canucks 5-1 lost the St. Louis Blues at Rogers Arena on Monday, sunk the franchise to a new low, a low even deeper than the previous one set by their 5-1 defeat at the hands of the Winnipeg Jets on Saturday. The season is barely two and a half months old, and the Canucks have lost uh, by the same four-goal deficit five times, uh, an NHL record in futility for a home team. And, you know, those are the stats. And I also spent a lot of time looking at Twitter, probably too much time, and, and follow folks who really follow the Canucks very closely. And, boy, uh, fans are down. Uh, commentators uh, don't have a lot uh, of good things to say at this particular point. So when I walked into work today, I talked to our producer, said, I want, I want an update. And no better person to speak on this than Blake Price, one of Anchor's most popular sports talk radio hosts. He is co-host, uh, co-host of the Zacharis and podcast highly recommend you check it out blake uh, good afternoon my friend afternoon how are you doing today uh a little bit chilly uh, to be quite <laughs> frank uh yeah but other than that doing pretty well good 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 so walk me through this uh and i'm just in it can be an echo chamber and i'll be the first one to admit it when i look at twitter are things as bad as they seem in the land of the vancouver canucks right now uh they are and that would be uh okay if you thought this was temporary, if you had come on the heels of a lot of success, the biggest problem with the Canucks situation right now is it's the same situation. It is losing hockey with little plan or prospect for things to turn around in the near future, near to medium future. And they've really been in this loop, stuck in this loop ever since 2014, 2015, when they had a surprisingly, surprisingly promising season uh, and and I would caution against anybody screaming at their radios right now talking about the uh, the pandemic playoff run in the bubble, uh, which was a very unique circumstance that uh, really it shouldn't be shouldn't be kept in in the fold in terms of uh, you know a season by season comparison. It was a very unique circumstance that allowed them to participate. So we are talking about you know the better part of a decade now of this team stuck in this losing loop. Uh, is it as hostile as it seems uh, at Rogers Arena now, and with that hostility directed towards uh, management, and and from what I've been reading anyway, increasingly towards ownership? Yeah, certainly that's there. Um, it ebbs and flows depending on the score in a game because when it's five to one, guess what? Throughout the course of the third period, people start to leave 
at different times, right? So you don't necessarily have that chorus of blue booze at the end when you maybe give up two goals in the final four minutes to lose four two. You know, then everybody's still there and everybody's booing and frustrated. When it's five to one in the third period, everyone's leaving. Uh, so you don't necessarily get the same level of frustration. And we might be even past the frustration point here in that because it's such an old story, because everybody has seen this movie before, uh, I think we're getting awfully close to apathy, which is the worst. It's, it's bad for somebody in my position. It's not fun to be a part of it if you're a fan, whenever, when there's nobody cheering beside you. But I think we might even be now moving past the stage of anger here and into apathy, which is a terrible place to be. Uh, is um, is this going to be, lead to a fundamental rebuild in your mind? Like, do we need to sort of go back to uh, kind of like a home? You got to strip it down to the studs and sort of start from the beginning. You know, wait for a couple of uh, really good uh, draft picks. That means probably having a couple of really bad losing seasons so you can get there. Uh, are we talking about that type of rebuild right now for the Canucks? We are, I think, in terms of what people are asking for, what people are ready for. The problem is none of those people are in Canucks management or at the top of the management scale anyway, and uh, and certainly don't include the owner who just refused to greenlight that sort of a plan that would put the Canucks on to a clear path of building for the future. And that doesn't have to be an eight-year sentence. Uh, yes, other teams have been mired in that before, but other teams have had the good fortune at the draft and, and have uh, sped that up to a three- or four-year span. I mean, the Rangers have had two different cycles of winning in the whole span of the years that we're talking about from 14-15 to today. So, you know, you can rebuild quicker, but you do have to commit to it. You do have to commit to bouncing off the bottom and, and building from below. And, you know, the Rangers went so far as to even writing a letter in the papers and saying, folks, we're doing this, and we apologize that we're going to see some losses here, but trust us, it's for the better. And that was signed off by Rangers' ownership, and they said, okay, we're going to do that. But time and time again, new management has come into this Connect organization and said, no, no, we think this is a lot closer than we think. And guess what? They're not very close at all. And so that's where the frustration with ownership uh, is there in that, He's the constant, you know, the, the Francesco Aquilini, the Aquilini family, that's the constant here. Other management groups have had a kick at it. They were unsuccessful. And now a very savvy group, a very good resume group of, uh, of, of management executives are there. They too uh, have fallen victim to this thought that this is a quick turnaround and it's clearly not. Well, it'll be fascinating to watch uh, what transpires over the next few weeks. Blake, thank you so much for your time, my friend, and uh, hopefully the commute isn't too long and uh, stay inside and stay warm, my friend. Thanks so much, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.